Hola mi gente. The moment you've been waiting for is finally here. My brand new book, Financially Lit, is officially out. And I can't wait for you to get your copy. Inside this book, I'm bringing you culturally relevant and relatable personal finance advice that will allow you to finally feel seen, heard, and understood. Whether it's the guilt you feel from being the first person to make it while members of your family are still struggling, or the way that financial trauma manifests itself in negative and limiting beliefs around money, Financially Lit is here to guide you through it all. Just a few years ago, it was almost impossible to find personal finance books written for first-generation wealth-building Latinas. We have been forced to navigate the complicated world of money with a bunch of money books written by old white dudes who don't understand what it's like for us first-gen kids. But that stops right here, right now. Inside Financially Lit, you will learn how to set boundaries with your familia, with your dinero, create and pass on generational wealth, diversify and increase your income, protect yourself from financial abuse, navigate the complicated relationship between amor and dinero, invest like a white dude or better, and so much more. You can get your hard copy and audiobook version of Financially Lit at financiallylitbook.com and make sure to join our email list so you can find out when I'm stopping in a city near you for the Financially Lit book tour. See you soon. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You don't want to quit your nine to five just to create another nine to five for yourself. So we have to be really intentional about this as we are creating passive income streams or starting a business. You don't want to trap yourself into the same lifestyle that you were trying to escape from in the first place. And then another note on why it's so important to have multiple streams of income is I think at some point we were all taught that having a full-time salaried position equated to job security and income security. At least I was taught that. And that's silly in my opinion because because what happens if you lose your job or there's a pandemic and your hours get cut, you get laid off, whatever happens, there goes your job security, there goes your income security. But if you have multiple sources of income, to me, that is true financial security. Because if something happens and one of those income streams goes away, you will still have other income streams to keep you afloat. You're listening to Yo Quiero Dinero a personal finance podcast for the modern Latina. I'm your host, Janice Torres, award-winning Latina personal finance expert. I didn't always have my financial shit together, but when I started looking for POC-friendly personal finance podcasts, I couldn't find any. And so Yo Quiero Dinero was born. On this show, I'll show you how to make dinero, how to keep your dinero, and most importantly, how to make it grow. Each week, I'm connecting you with the most brilliant minds in the world of money and business, so you can learn about investing, entrepreneurship, and building wealth. The best part? I'm dishing up all this knowledge with a sassy side of sazón. So if you're ready to be poderosa with your dinero, you've come to the right place. Let's dive in. Before we hop into today's conversation, I want to remind you to follow us on social. If you're loving this podcast and you want more community, you want to find out more about our events and all the stuff that we have going on behind the scenes, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, and everywhere else you love to hang out on the internet. If you're loving this podcast, please take a moment to leave us a review if you listen to us on Apple. It's the easiest way to share our podcast with people that you know and love, and it helps us get discovered by amazing listeners like you. So take a moment, leave us a review, share us with your friends and family, subscribe so that you never miss an episode, and make sure to check out our blog, YoQuieroDineroPodcast.com, where you can sign up for our email list and you'll never miss an episode. Plus, you get exclusive invitations to our live events, special discounts for our digital courses, and as always, our best personal finance tips and advice to help you be poderosa with your dinero. Thanks for listening. Now, let's get into the episode. 
Rachel, I'm so excited to have you at the podcast. Welcome. (laughs) Thanks, Janice. I've been looking forward to this for months, so I'm excited to talk to you as well. Excellent. Okay, so we have so much to discuss. You are one of the first women that I actually encountered here on the gram that was talking about money, talking about passive income, talking about just like using money to live your best life. So thank you for what you do, because I feel like we need so many more people in this space that are just giving us like unapologetic permission to use money for what it can be, which is a tool to help you live the life that you want. Yes, exactly. I love to see more women in this space too. So I'm honored to know you and thank you for sharing your gifts with the world as well. Thank you. Okay, so let's dive right into your story. So you are famous for achieving financial independence in your 20s. Take me back. Was this always part of the plan? Like, were you just out here plotting since like the age of 12? Like, hey, I'm just going to quit my corporate career in my 20s and go live my best life. What was the original (laughs) plan? I'm not going to lie. I was a finance nerd literally probably from the age of 12. So you kind of guessed it. But did I think I would actually do it? No. So I remember being in sixth grade, reading this book, The Motley Fool's Guide for Teens, How to Have More Money Than Your Parents Ever Dreamed Of, which to me at the time sounded amazing because I grew up in a household where there was not abundant amounts of money. I was reading this book at summer camp when all the other people were going down the water slide and playing, and I was sitting at the edge of the pool reading this book. And then sparks were going off and I was learning about compound interest and investing in the stock market in sixth grade. (laughs) So little nerd I was and still am proud of it. But I grew up in a very wealthy county and by no means was my family living in poverty. That's definitely not how it was, but I didn't know better back then. And I remember thinking that we were poor by comparison because some of the people in my high school were getting brand new BMWs when they turned 16 and going on lavish vacations and all these things. And my family was not operating that way. We were not going on family vacations, let alone even going out to eat at restaurants. So I remember thinking everyone else had money and we didn't. And we always struggled with money. There was never enough to go around. My family was living paycheck to paycheck and it was just always a struggle. There was never enough. So I remember thinking at one point that I didn't want to grow up and struggle like everyone else that I saw that was close to me with money. I didn't want to have to operate on a strict budget or live paycheck to paycheck or borrow money from family and friends to make it to my next paycheck. I wanted to be different. And I remember thinking what I did then at a young age would either set me up for wealth or for poverty. So I began to take this subject very seriously and learn everything I possibly could, read books, read the websites. I tried to educate myself and I began to take learning about money management very seriously at a young age. And that is what kind of set my trajectory apart from many of my peers, I would say. Yeah, that's a major piece of information that I think it's like when you find out about this world, you can do two things. What I notice most people do, they either like go balls to the wall, like I want to learn all the things or they get overwhelmed and they're just like, I don't want to learn any of it. So what was it about you, you think that made you be like, I want to learn everything about this, even if I don't necessarily feel like I'm going to understand all of it right away? I was motivated by fear. Everything I've done is because of the fears that I have, to be honest. They say fear can be paralyzing or motivating. And luckily for me, in my case, it was very motivating for me. I was driven by the desire to be financially independent because I saw my parents' struggles up close and personal, and I never wanted to end up in a similar situation. And I wanted to be able to take care of myself, but I also wanted to be able to take care of my loved ones if they ever needed it. If there was ever a medical emergency or financial emergency, I wanted to be in a situation where I could help them without having to check my bank account balance and just be able to help them. That's what I always wanted to do. So that is what I was operating from. And I still have that today, even though I have more money than I ever thought I would have in my life. There's still that fear there and still that, do I have enough? It still is driving me a lot, unfortunately. I can absolutely testify to the idea that, yes, the money does not actually make the scarcity mindset go away. I think it transforms into something else. And I've heard some anecdotal data from people that have said, like, even when somebody like hits a million, they'd feel better if they had two. Or if they had five million in the bank, they'd feel better if they had 10. So it's just like, you're always going to be thinking that like, it's never enough. And so I think a a lot of people can understand that. And I'm seeing hearts in the chat here. So I know 
know people are like, yo, girl, you're talking my language. So let's talk through your career. So what did you study in school? What was the original plan? And then how did you first find out about the financial independence movement? Okay. I studied financial economics in college. I went into college knowing I was going to have to pay for my own school because my parents didn't have the means to help me pay for college. So I knew I was going to have to pay for my own school. So what I did to pay my way is I sold Cutco Cutlery. Have you heard of Cutco Knives by any chance? Okay. So it is this high quality knives made in America. And I sold the heck out of those knives. My mom was less than thrilled about the idea of me selling sharp objects to family and friends, but that is what I did. Set some sales records, sold a bunch of knives, and I graduated debt-free, which is one of my proudest accomplishments. So I did that, and then I became a financial advisor. So I was a licensed financial advisor, Series 7 and 66, because I had this passion for helping people with money. That's always what I've wanted to do. But a year into that job, I just realized that's a sales position. Every financial advisor, it's really a sales position. And although I can be good at sales, I'm an introvert. So it was very draining for me. It was very forced for me. And I just decided this is not the way I want to help people. The desire for helping people learn how to invest and manage their money was always there. So I just decided I have to figure out a different way to do that. So then I got into real estate. I took a few jobs in real estate, real estate investing, pivoted a few times. I mean, I changed jobs every nine months, it felt like, for the first few years. That's really how I started out. In terms of learning about the financial independence movement, I feel like I was really turned on to it when I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad in high school. And I think that book is a lot of people's light bulb moment book in terms of real estate investing. So back then I was like, okay, I want to invest in real estate. I didn't know though that there are so many other ways to create passive income, but that was my path out of the rat race back then. So that was what I was focused on first and foremost. And it wasn't until years later that I discovered all these other ways. And I now have seven or eight or nine passive income streams. That's kind of how I got started. Okay. So we're going to dive into your various income streams, but let's start off with real estate, because that was your initial plan for building wealth, correct? Yes. Real estate investing was the first plan. So tell me how you got started. Okay. So in 2017, my husband and I purchased our first duplex. And that was the very first thing we did to get started investing in real estate. And just at a high level, so everyone kind of knows the big picture here. 2017, we started investing in real estate. Later that year, I self-published my first book, Money Honey. So we had these two passive income streams, rental income and royalty income. And over the next few years, we focused on growing those as much as we possibly could. Fast forward to 2019, we, by then then owned 38 doors and we had grown our passive income to $10,000 a month. And by 2019, I was able to quit my job and retire, which I put in quotes, which I can explain that word. We can talk about that. So by 2019, I quit my job living off over $10,000 a month in passive income and I was financially independent. And that was kind of the high level overview. But that's how we got started is we each saved $10,000 independently to come up with a $20,000 down payment for a $100,000 duplex in Louisville, Kentucky. Now, I know already that there's people probably listening in California, Austin, Texas, Denver, Colorado, whatever, that are like, I can't even get a parking space for 100 grand in this market right now. So I feel you. The market has changed. And what I talk about a lot is how to find off-market deals and really the importance of not looking on the MLS and getting really creative and being willing to invest out of state and all these other creative strategies. It is still possible even in this market to find something at that price range. It is still possible. But that is how I got started with real estate investing. That's incredible. And yeah, I feel like real estate investing, it's like you either love it or you hate it. And I think a lot of people want to get into it, but especially with this market, it's like, where the hell do we start? And so I'm glad that you mentioned that when you think about real estate purchasing, especially like your primary home where you would go through like a realtor and you'd go into the MLS or you'd hang out on Zillow, that's not necessarily how real estate investors operate. From what I've heard, it's like, you know, people and they will present like off market deals or you'll like drive around the neighborhood and look for houses that look like abandoned or look like they're unkept or you go to auctions. Like there's a secret world out here of real estate investors that has nothing to do with hanging out on Zillow every day. (laughs) Snaps. Yes. Yes. And you just named three of the off-market strategies, networking, driving for dollars, and foreclosure auctions. 
I have like 10 different strategies. There's bandit signs, there's probate leads, there's short sales. There's a ton of different ways where you can find off-market leads, but you're correct. The thing is with the MLS, it's so competitive and so saturated and everyone's doing it because you don't even have to get off your couch to look for leads. But if you want to find great rental properties in this market, you have to be willing to do what others are not. And that's the bottom line. So you're correct. There is a whole secret world that real estate investors do to find amazing leads in this market. Now, I've had my share of experience with real estate investing, and I have found that for me and the way my personality is set up, it's just not like I don't want to deal with humans, especially (laughs) when it comes with like tenants and like shit breaking. So how do you decide like personality wise if real estate investing is for you? Okay, this is a great question, Janice, and I'm glad you brought this up because another thing I talk about is... Is owning rental properties even passive? Is it even a passive income stream? And what is passive income really? And I always tell people that owning rental properties is not passive unless you have a property manager. Like sure, owning three or five units if they're long-term tenants, it's pretty passive, honestly. That's what I do. I self-manage. It's hardly any work. But when you get to 38 doors, like what I used to have, that is a lot of work. And chances are, those of you listening who want to learn about passive income, you probably don't want to quit your job to become a full-time landlord. That is my guess. So you really need to have a property manager in place if you want it to be passive. And it's still not going to be 100% passive because there's always going to be an aspect of manage the manager. So I want to set your expectations correctly because there's too many of these gurus out there who are saying passive income streams, 100% passive. You don't have to do any work. It's easy, blah, blah, blah. And that's not the way it is. So there's a lot of misconceptions, I think, about what passive income is. To me, it's money that is earned with little ongoing effort. That doesn't mean no ongoing effort. That means little ongoing effort. And there's certainly a lot of work that goes into creating the passive income stream in the first place. Now, personality-wise, even if you don't want to be a landlord at all, there are still so many ways that you can invest in real estate and reap the benefits. You could invest in a crowdfunded real estate platform like School of Wales or Fundrise. You could invest in REITs, real estate investment trusts on the stock market. You could invest in syndications, which is something I'm doing now. There's a lot of ways to still invest in real estate, even if you don't want to be a landlord. I'm so glad you brought that up because that's what I realized that the physical ownership of real estate and interacting with that, with your tenants and just like that personal level, for me, it just felt like another job that I wasn't ready to take on. And if I'm being 100% honest with myself, like financially, I just wasn't in the best place. I still had a ton of debt. I think I felt pressured to a lot of these societal expectations about like what you should be doing by a certain age. And so, you know, if you're feeling the pressure to like purchase real estate because everybody's like, well, you're 30 or whatever, like you have two kids or like, what are you doing? Tell them to shut the hell up because real estate is going to be one of the biggest purchases that you have in your entire freaking life, especially if it's like, you know, you're owning physical assets. I have found that for me, REITs love it. It's like, okay, that's how I want to invest in real estate for the time being. And then in the future, I'm looking at syndications, but there's so many options. And I think that's why it's important for you to follow folks like Rachel, because she knows all the things she's been doing this for a while. Now, you were able to scale to, what is it, almost 40 units in two years. Please tell us how, because that sounds crazy. (laughs) Yeah, it happened a lot faster than I thought. I was originally on a 15-year plan. That was the goal. So to achieve it in two years blew my expectations out of the water. So there were a few things that allowed us to scale quickly. First of all, we were investing in affordable location, Louisville, Kentucky. And again, I recommend and encourage you to consider investing out of state if you live somewhere like California or just somewhere that's really expensive. So Louisville, Kentucky was a really great advantage for us. Number two, we were living frugally. So even before I met my husband, I was living off $36,000 salary. And that was after I graduated from college. And my next salary was $32,000. And then my next salary after that was $42,000. So by no means did I have this huge salary advantage. Okay. I never made six figures from a job or a career. I now make it as a self-employed person, but never when I was an employee. So I never made six figures, but I was saving 50% of my income back then and living very frugally. Now, what I did involved a lot of sacrifice and I think there's better ways to do it. So I'm not necessarily recommending you do what I did. That was really intense, but I was saving half of that salary. So even within a few years, I could save thousands and thousands of dollars. 
And that's where I came up with the initial $10,000 for the down payment for the first property. Another thing is that we did not give into lifestyle creep. So this first duplex that we bought, this $100,000 duplex in Louisville, Kentucky, it took us forever to find this. And it was a very discouraging process. And if you're an aspiring investor and if you've been looking for properties, you've probably felt this way. We wanted to quit and give up at one point. We had seen tons of properties. We had run the numbers on hundreds of properties. We even had an accepted contract on a property that fell through. And at that point, we wanted to quit. And so finally, when we closed on this duplex after nine months of searching, and we were making $500 in cash flow profit per month, it would have been so easy for us to say, let's upgrade our lifestyle. Let's move into a nicer place. Let's finally buy a new car and have a car payment and just live fancy. That's what I wanted to do. Instead of doing that, we continued to delay gratification and we said, okay, let's save this $500 a month and reinvest it for the next down payment for the next property. So that's what we did. We avoided lifestyle creep. It was hard, but it was a key for us to continue to scale quickly. And then the last, and this is really the key, is that I had my real estate license and I did not have it for the purpose of helping clients buy and sell houses. It was only for my own purposes as an investor. So what this means is I would represent myself as the buyer's agent on every deal. So I'd be the buyer and I'd be my own buyer's agent. And we would deplete our savings with every purchase. But I knew that I would get a commission check back at closing sometimes for thousands and thousands of dollars, which would help us save more money for the next down payment. Sometimes these commission checks were $10,000 or $11,000, and that would give us a huge chunk to save for the next down payment. So that was really the biggest piece for us was that I had my real estate license, and that was a huge, huge advantage. That's what allowed us to scale so quickly. That's such a major hack. Holy shit. Like I never thought of this. I'm like writing down, okay, go get real estate license. <laughs> Another thing I need to go and do. That's incredible. Incredible. One question that I have that I've always wondered about for folks who finance all of their real estate investments, does it get more difficult as you have more mortgages with the banks? Like, how do you deal with that? This is a great question. And I get this a lot. So I'm glad you asked this one. Typically, getting up to 10 mortgages is not super difficult. And there's a program, I think, called the Fannie Mae 510 Properties Program that allows you to have up to 10 mortgages pretty easily. Now, what I was not aware of starting out was the fact that if you're investing with your husband or a partner or whatever, and if you apply jointly for every mortgage, jointly with both people's names, then you can only get up to 10 mortgages jointly. However, if you each apply individually for 10 mortgages, so you trade off, I'll apply for one, your partner will apply for the next, then you can get up to 20 mortgages. So just make sure that you're kind of intentionally figuring out who's going to apply for what mortgage if, and you want to do it that way. There's different repercussions. You know, always talk to an attorney, CPA, insurance agent about all this stuff. But that's one way you can get up to 20 mortgages, especially if you're doing this with a significant other or a business partner. Now, if you're over 10 mortgages, then it will get a little more tricky and you might have to start thinking about creative financing. So applying for jumbo mortgages or portfolio loans or starting to ask for seller financing, start starting to get a silent partner, starting to fund these deals with cash via a silent partner. There's a lot of ways to keep doing it. So what I would tell you to do is don't worry about that. Just get those first few deals under your belt. And I promise you that by the time you get to the 10th and 11th mortgage, you're going to have a way figured out to keep financing these deals. And what kind of paperwork is required? Like, do you need to show the cash flow that you have in existing real estate? Like, what does that process look like? So with a lot of lenders, there's different requirements. And a lot of lenders will not actually count your existing cash flow from your existing rentals towards your income, which kind of sucks because they'll count your debt against you. They'll count all your mortgages against you, but then they won't count the cash flow and the rental income in your benefit. So sometimes when you continue to apply for these mortgages, your debt to income ratio looks very unfavorable, if that makes sense, which is really frustrating. I've run into that before. The trick, in my opinion, is to work with lenders that are small local lenders or small local credit unions. Do not work with the big national banks like Wells Fargo, Chase, Republic. Those can be a nightmare. They don't have flexibility. They don't really have great customer service. So look for your small local lenders or your commercial lenders also have better flexibility. And when you find those ones that are more flexible, they will count the cash flow from your current rentals. Some of them, this is rare, but some of them will even count the cash flow of the property you intend to buy. So the future cash flow. So you just have to work with the right people and they will help you 
qualify for that next mortgage. Yeah, that's what I continue to hear time and time again from folks who are real estate investors. It's like you have basically Rolodex full of people that you call on for different things. You know, you have your professionals that you work with for like contractors, you have your lenders, you have your inspectors, you have a whole crew of people that you just leverage time and time again. So when you find those good people, you keep them in your back pocket. Yes. Okay, so let's talk about financial independence and your claim to fame of becoming fire at 27. So I think there's a lot of people who get triggered by the RE in fire because they're just like, well, you're technically not retired because you're like out here writing books and selling courses and blah, blah, blah. So what's your take on, you know, people that say like we're fake fire followers because we're not actually retired? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online store shop phase to the first real life store stage, all the way to the, did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash dinero, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash dinero now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash dinero. Oh, I love it. I mean... <laughs> It's. <laughs> I love getting this question because it allows me to address it. And I think it's totally fair. It's a different set of opinions and that's fine. I have a few ways to address this. First of all, I make $20,000 a month in passive profit. And I say an income in my bio because that's just easier to say. And it's $20,000 a month in passive profit. And that does not include my active income streams. So I have certain courses like my boot camp that I'm promoting right now, which it's an active income stream because it's something I teach live. So there's nothing passive about that one. So that number that I tell people is true passive profit. And that means that if I stop doing all of the active stuff and I stop working really and I want to walk away, those passive numbers are still going to be there with very little to no ongoing effort. So that's what that number means for me. And then Secondly, in my opinion, I use the words retired and financially independent interchangeably. And that's where I think people disagree. And that's fine. And so maybe I should just say financially independent and that would clear the confusion and that's fine. But the thing is, I now work when, where, and if I want to. I work because I want to, not because I have to. And I would love to be one of those people who could just achieve financial independence and then do the beach thing for the rest of my life and not work anymore. Like I'd love to be like that, but I am a type A control freak person and I need to be creating something and building something to be fulfilled. Like I get bored way too easily. Okay. So I will never stop working. This is what I love to do. This is what fulfills me. I'm in Italy right now. I've been in Italy for a month. I'm traveling and working. Like 
I'm living my best life. This is exactly what I want to be doing. So this is what I mean when I say I'm financially independent and retired. That's my definition of it. All of y'all on here, like snaps, (laughs) clapping, like all the things, because we stand a financially independent queen on this platform. Okay, that's number one. And I love how you explained, you know, the fact that you do have this passive income, which a lot of people sell as bullshit snake oil, like they're selling semi passive income as truly passive income. But you have figured out a way through real estate investing to literally like outsource all the things that have to do with management and you're just reaping the benefits of the cash flow. Same way as like, y'all, I spent seven years building my fucking food blog to the point where now it's six figures in passive income. No, I'm not blogging. No, I'm not doing sponsored content. No, I'm not doing anything. I just pay for an annual hosting plan and the traffic, it just generates. Like it's just, it almost feels like we've unlocked the matrix because Mm -hmm. for such a long time, you spend that time, that energy, the effort, the money building those streams. And then when you finally reap those benefits, it's almost just like, holy shit, why are we not teaching everyone about this? Because truly it has opened up a world of possibilities for both you and I just having the options to say, no, I don't want to do this shit. No, I don't want that job. No, I don't want to deal with any drama in my life. I just want to be able to decide whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it and know that my bills are going to be paid. That is like the ultimate power. And I think like both of us can agree that we want that for everybody. Because life is too damn short. Yes. And I'm very passionate about it. I know you are too. And I'm passionate about it. And I think you'll agree with this because we are in a financial education crisis. And at no point in our lives are we taught how to manage our money. And then we're left as young adults to try to figure it out all on our own. It's no wonder I see so many young women come to me, my friends and my family come to me with these feelings of guilt and shame and embarrassment because they don't know how to manage their money. But what's shameful to me is the fact that we weren't given the resources we need to succeed. That's what's a shame. So that's what gets me fired up. I mean, I get mad when I even talk about it, but that's why we both do what we do. Spend so much time and effort putting free content out there so we can teach these things so that everyone else can hopefully better themselves and be in a similar position in a few years. Yeah. And I think, you know, we are probably the first generation of women that really has access to the financial tools and capital to be able to do this stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Like as far back as the 1970s, like women couldn't get their own credit cards. They couldn't get their own loans. So the women in our families are the last generation of women who were financially capped off with what they could accomplish. And so now I feel like there's this desire amongst us to reclaim all of the stolen wealth that has been taken from like generations of women and also just like pave a path that has not existed. 100%. All right. So let's talk about your book, Money Honey. So did you always plan to be an author too on top of killing it in the real estate game? Or how did that come about? <laughs> it was a passion project for me. And it makes me laugh because it was nothing I ever thought would work or take off or turn into a business. So when I get asked that question, I giggle because I'm like, I can't believe that it's turned into what it's turned into. Just something I felt compelled to do in 2017. And I self-published it. And then it just took off. And I'm still shocked about it to this day. <laughs> so as you know, I I'm writing a book. And so you've actually went the self-published route. I'm curious if you could share some of your marketing strategies around that, because I think a lot of folks have an intention to write a book and maybe they want to go self-published, but then they're like overwhelmed with like, how do I actually make people like care about this and stand out from, you know, people who are competing with the traditional publishing companies? For sure. And for anyone listening, I just want you to know that when I self-published Money Honey in 2017, no one knew who I was. I had no platform. I had no following. I had no email list. I had my own Instagram with maybe 200 followers, but I was nobody. So you can absolutely achieve what I achieved with no platform. So I just want to say that first and foremost. I wrote Money Honey because all my family and friends came to me for financial advice because I was a former financial advisor. It's what I love to do. I had experience, what I love to do. And they came to me for financial advice. And I began to ask myself, you know, why aren't they reading, learning on their own, reading websites, reading books, blah, blah, blah. That's what I did. And then I had this aha moment where I realized, oh yeah, they're not learning on their own because personal finance is boring. It's intimidating. It's complex. It's overwhelming. No wonder they don't want to learn about it. So I thought to myself, how can I make this topic sassy and fun and simple? And that's where the idea for Money Honey came from. So it was very exciting for me to sit down and start writing. I felt like I was just onto something. And 
that's why I started writing it. So the lesson of that story is that you need to have a unique value proposition. You need to be able to articulate why would somebody buy your book over the thousands of other books that are already out there, right? Because thousands of books about personal finance have been written. So why would somebody buy your book over all of the other ones? And if you can't articulate that very, very well, you will have a hard time marketing it and a hard time selling it. So that's the first thing. Have something unique. Create a solution to a problem. Solve a hole in the market. That's the first thing. The second thing in terms of launch strategies, I read this book called Published by Chandler Bolt. I cannot recommend it enough. It's a great book. And I followed his launch strategy. So what I actually did with Money Honey is I launched it for free. And the strategy is that you might be giving up some revenue in the short term, but you're making up and hopefully gaining a lot of revenue in the long term because you're getting your book in as many hands as possible. And if your book's good and you've done a good job, then they're going to be thrilled with it. And they're going to share it by word of mouth. They're going to promote it for you. And that's basically what happened. So I sold my ebook for free for, I don't know, three or four days. And I got a few thousand downloads. And because it was a well-written book, these people turned into fans and they shared and promoted it for me. And they said, you need to buy this book. And then I bumped the price to 99 cents and then $1.99 and then $2.99. So it's not hard to have enough trust, even from some random person like me. I didn't have a platform. I didn't have credibility. But for someone to fork over, first of all, nothing because it was free. And then 99 cents it's an easy sale. You're not asking for a lot. So that's another thing that I did. Where were you advertising? Since you said your platform was so small, where did you find those initial customers? I found them mainly from some Facebook groups. So this was kind of an unintentional launch strategy that I did. A lot of people recommend that you have a launch team, right? When you launch a book, all of the advice is form your launch team. Well, I was like, a launch team? Who's going to like me enough to be willing to buy my book, share it, review it, download it, tell people to buy it? I was like, "Mm mm-mm. You know, it was total imposter syndrome. I was like, I can't do that. So I didn't do that. And what I was doing though, is I was engaged in a couple Facebook groups that had my target audience. This was not intentional though. I was already engaging this Facebook groups. I think they were more like political oriented. They weren't really even personal finance oriented, but they had a lot of female millennials. And I was already in these groups. Every so often a finance question would come up and I would go on there and I would say, Hey, I'm Rachel. I'm a former financial advisor. Here's what I think. And I would type out a long, simple, detailed response. And after doing this enough times, people just started to recognize that I was being very helpful, adding a lot of value. So they would start to tag me if a finance question would come up. And they would say, hey, you need to ask Rachel. Rachel's your girl. Rachel's the guru in the group, blah, blah, blah. So I earned trust and I became known as the guru in some of these groups. Some of them had 13,000 female millennials. And so when I finally came up with the book idea, I said, hey, you all, I'm thinking of writing this book. What do you think? I don't know. What do you think? And they said, Rachel, you have to write this book. I would read anything that you write. You make this topic so easy to understand. you know, please write it. I'll buy it, blah, blah, blah. So it's kind of like I had this informal launch team without actually creating a launch team. And that's where a lot of my initial reviews and buyers and downloads came from. I love that. So you were doing like the whole grassroots, you know, campaign thing. That's awesome. You know, and I think it just speaks to the power of like, when you know that you have something to say, stop psyching yourself out. Like somebody's going to care about it. If you care about it, there's at least one other person who cares about what you're doing. And especially when you come from a place of authenticity where you're just like genuinely trying to help people. I think you built a lot of trust with people by doing that initial free offer. And that's honestly how I started my platform too. You know, I started with the podcast doing that for free. I did my first virtual events for free. And it was like building that trust with folks and seeing like, hey, I am not out here, you know, just take your money and run. Like I'm actually here because I care about this. And that trust then translates into a monetary value when you do start charging for stuff. Because you've already established the fact that you have a track record. Like that's priceless. So if y'all are out here thinking about starting business and you're just like, I don't know how to start building my authority or building that trust. Yo, like do shit for free. I mean, really, that's how you really start to, first of all, I think it's a great way to take the pressure off of yourself because when you launch your first product, you're like, if you get so caught up in the numbers and like, oh my God, if I don't make any money. No, like you have to be coming from a place of service if you really want to have something that's sustainable. Yeah. 
Yes. Add value first and then ask for something later because you do, you have to build that trust and credibility first. And if you're not giving massive amounts of value in the first place, no one's going to want to pay you money later on. So I totally agree with that. Absolutely. Gems, y'all. So we talked a little bit about passive income, but what are your favorite ways of earning passive income? Because I feel like there's just so many. And I think you have a resource guide that has like 20 plus different ideas, which I'm just like, what? I do. I do, which I'm happy to share. Favorite passive income streams. So one that I love for beginners, for people who don't know where to start, don't have a ton of money to invest into a passive income stream or don't feel like they have a lot of skills. This is just for every newbie out there is print on demand. Print on demand, I love. And I've done this one personally. So think of if you were trying to open a physical store where you were selling merchandise, the problem with that is that you have financial risk because you have to stock your whole store in the hopes that it will sell. And if something in your store doesn't sell, then you basically have lost money on that item. That's inventory risk. That's financial risk. Now with print on demand, it's basically like made to order. So you only have to stock an item once it's actually purchased. That's what's really cool about print on demand. So the way this works is there's all these platforms out here like Amazon Merch and Redbubble and Etsy. And they have all these items, tank tops and tote bags and phone cases and sweatpants. All you have to do is create a design. And the design goes on these products. And you only get paid if and when the item sells. And if it doesn't sell, you don't lose any money because you're not buying inventory. You're also not responsible for the printing and the shipping of the item. You don't hold any of these items in stock. If something sells, this platform handles all of us. You're not even touching any of these physical items as inventory. You just upload a design and then you sit back and wait to see if it sells. So it's really brilliant. I've done it personally years ago. I don't really do it anymore, although I'm still making about $100 to $200 a month in passive income. And I literally do nothing. At the height of it, though, when I was really putting a lot of work and effort into it, I made $1,700 one month. And that was years ago. So it's amazing. You can also outsource the designing aspect of it and look on Fiverr or Upwork for designers to make these for you if you don't have like Photoshop skills, which I didn't have. So that's what I did. But I think print on demand is a great way to get started creating passive income. I absolutely love that. One of my favorites is affiliate marketing because, you know, I think a lot of folks think that you have to launch your own product in order to be making money on these internet streets, but you actually don't. You can just promote other people's existing products. So if you want to leverage your existing community and, you know, as a podcaster, it was hard for me to get sponsorship in the beginning. It was hard for me to get ads. So how did I start monetizing my podcast from day one? Affiliate marketing, y'all. It's so useful in so many ways. So that's one of the strategies that I teach my clients is like, if you want to monetize your podcast, don't be waiting for the ads. Don't wait for the sponsorships. Like start with affiliate marketing because it's really easy to get started. Brilliant. I love affiliate marketing and anyone can sign up for an Amazon Associates profile, I'm pretty sure. And then you can market any product on Amazon. So if there's a cute dress, my friend Lindsay was just saying that she got this adorable dress on Amazon. She was like, I have sold three of my friends on this dress. And I was like, you should sign up for an Amazon affiliate and be making money off of this. And the cool thing about that is that if somebody clicks your affiliate link and they not only buy the product you recommended, but they buy all this other stuff in their cart you get paid on all of those items. So it's amazing. I'm a big fan. Yeah. And it's almost impossible to go to Amazon and order one thing. It's like going to Target. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's hard on my wallet. (laughs) So I love that you also talk about multiple income streams because I feel like there's like two schools of thought with especially like business coaches. There's like the coaches that will tell you like, just do one thing and focus all your energy on that. And then there's people like me that are just like, no, that feels too much like a nine to five paycheck. Like, fuck that. We need to find all the different different ways that there are to make money in your business so that you are not subject to that rat race, right? I find a lot of, especially like coaches and edupreneurs, like they'll have one way to serve people, like one-on-one coaching, for example. And then I'm just looking at them like, okay, but like, what if you want to take a month off? Like, what do you do? Because if you have to show up for every single dollar of your business, then congratulations. Like you just created a hamster wheel. Whereas for me, like I can decide when I want to work because I have so many different ways to earn income in my business. So tell 
tell me about your income streams and how you've built them up over time. Yeah. And you make a great point. My business coach was also just reiterating the point that you don't want to quit your nine to five just to create another nine to five for yourself. So we have to be really intentional about this as we are creating passive income streams or starting a business. You don't want to trap yourself into the same lifestyle that you were trying to escape from in the first place. And then another note on why it's so important to have multiple streams of income is I think at some point we were all taught that having a full-time salaried position equated to job security and income security. At least I was taught that. And that's silly in my opinion because what happens if you lose your job or there's a pandemic and your hours get cut, you get laid off, whatever happens, there goes your job security, there goes your income security. But if you have multiple sources of income, to me, that is true financial security. Because if something happens and one of those income streams goes away, you will still have other income streams to keep you afloat. This is a little bit of a tangent here. But during COVID, I want to share this because it's a realistic thing. All of my rental income went away for one month. In April 2020, I was making $10,000 a month in profit from my rentals. In April 2020, I made $0 in profit from my rentals. Now, I didn't lose money, but I didn't make money either. And the only reason I was not panicking that month is because I had multiple other sources of income to keep me afloat. And that is the beauty of it. The last thing you want to do is to lose an income stream and then be operating out of a place of desperation. So if you want to build true financial security, make sure you're thinking about how can I have multiple sources of income or how can I have income diversification? So that's a really important point that I'm glad you brought up. And I think you asked me, what are all of my income streams? So what makes up the 20K a month in passive income or in passive profit that I have? I make anywhere between five dollars to $10,000 a month in profit from my books. So my two books, Money Honey, and then Passive Income Aggressive Retirement, those are a big chunk. And then I make about $5,000 a month in profit from my rental properties. And then about one to $2,000 a month in profit from my syndications. About $5,000 a month in profit from my Get Your Financial Shit Together course. <laughs> And that's my only passive course. I don't count my other courses in these numbers because they're not passive. And then I have other miscellaneous income streams such as affiliate marketing, fundraise, dividends, interest, and other things that make up the rest, the other little portion. So that is where it all comes from. That is fucking incredible. And honestly, like the sexiest thing ever. Like y'all, if you want to turn somebody on, like get some passive income, like for real. It's okay. Okay, So if someone wants to start creating passive income, where should should they start? Because I feel like the overwhelm is real. The overwhelm can definitely be real. Here's what I would say. I look at passive income in two phases. In phase one, when you're creating passive income, there's nothing passive about it because it takes time and or effort to create the passive income stream in the first place. So phase one is challenging. It's difficult. You are creating the passive income stream. Then in phase two, once you have this passive income stream going or launched or whatever, then it becomes hands-off. And that's when it really turns into a passive income stream. Okay. But phase one is unavoidable. So you have to get your mind wrapped around that. And what you need to ask yourself is, do I have more time or money to invest into creating this passive income stream. Now, if you're anything like I was a few years ago, you would say, I don't have either. I have no time and I have no money to put into this. (laughs) So the next question to ask yourself is which one is going to be easier for you to free up? Is it going to be easier for you to free up some time in your week or is it going to be easier for you to create some more money to invest into this passive income stream? So you have to be really clear on that. There are certain passive income streams like royalty-based income streams, things like self-publishing, creating an online course, doing print on demand. Those are more time intensive. You don't necessarily need a lot of money to do those things. Then there are things like portfolio income where you're simply investing in the stock market or in different investments to earn interest or dividends. You typically need a lot of money invested to create a meaningful amount of revenue. So with that type of passive income, you need a lot more money than time. So if you just figure out, first of all, if you have more time or money, then that will inform you which passive income stream should you pursue first, which one makes the most sense. I love that. Rachel, you are a wealth of knowledge and I want folks to find out everything that you're working on, all of your different offerings. So tell us first off where we can find you and what you're working on and where folks should go to learn more about how to work with you. Thank you. You are so sweet. I appreciate it. So both of my books, Money, Honey, and Passive Income Aggressive Retirement are available on Amazon in ebook, paperback, and audiobook. And I am on IG at Money, Honey, Rachel. What I would love to do for your listeners is if anyone listening would 
would like to download my passive income starter kit, I am going to give that for free. So you can go to www.moneyhoneyrachel.com forward slash passive income to download that. Amazing. And y'all who are here on Instagram live, surprise, you just got something for free. So go and download that at moneyhoneyrachel.com slash passive income. Don't say we never take care of y'all. Don't say we never hook you up. Okay. And we're going to include the link for that in the episode show notes so that you can go ahead and download that. Rachel, thank you so much. You are such a badass. I am so here for everything that you're doing and I can't wait to continue to watch your journey. It is so inspiring. So thank you for what you do. Thank you so much for having me. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you are ready to take your dinero to the next level, sign up for our free 14-page guide, The Financially Lit Latina, the ultimate blueprint for becoming poderosa with your dinero. This 14-page guide includes our best tips on money mindset, budgeting, debt repayment, career, investing, financial independence, side hustles, and more. And you can get it completely free. So to get your copy of the Financially Lit Latina, just head over to YoQuieroDineroPodcast.com slash start. That's YoQuieroDineroPodcast.com slash start and start transforming your dinero story today. Until next time, stay empowered, stay inspired, and stay poderosa. On the Yo Quiero Dinero podcast and associated entities, all information provided is for general information purposes only and does not constitute accounting, legal, tax, or other professional advice. Listeners should not act upon the content or information found here without first seeking appropriate advice from an accountant, financial planner, lawyer, or other professional. We assume no responsibility for information contained on this podcast and associated entities and disclaim all liability with respect to such information, including but not limited to any liability for errors, inaccuracies, omissions or misleading or defamatory statements. Usage of this podcast and associated content constitutes an explicit understanding and acceptance of the terms of this disclaimer.